Welcome to the Love Reimagined Podcast. If you're tired of hearing about a God who is supposedly represented perfectly through Jesus, but is less kind than you, your grandma, and even Hitler, this podcast is for you. We welcome you to join Joe Chadburn, that's me, and friends as we reimagine Father through the perfect lens of Christ. Now, we occasionally tip a few sacred cows, but be assured that no members of the bovine species were harmed during the recording of this episode you are about to enjoy. Hi, friends. It's Joe Chadburn. I am back with Colin McIntyre, the creator of Covenant Cards. Welcome, Colin. Thank you for having me, Joe. I super honor and a pleasure to join you on this uh, amazing podcast you have going thanks man yeah we're just enjoying this love reimagined podcast i was going to call it the jesus isn't a jerk podcast but uh, i thought that might be a little too wild but yeah you encouraged me to at least do a series on that but that's it we'll see about that that would be interesting but uh, for now uh, we're in part part four of the debunking last days hysteria series I encourage everyone uh, for a foundation to build up to this and to understand uh, a perspective where we're coming from. Listen to the first three parts of this series along with my interview with Colin about covenant cards that cover a lot of this material. It's really, really good. Um, we're gonna be talking about, again, last day's theology, I can sometimes come across as uh, angry about it, but I'm not, and mocking it, but I'm not angry with people or mocking people. I came up, Colin, in a tradition that taught Darbyism and so much fear mongering and hopelessness, and that Jesus was angry and just wanted to destroy the entire earth and most of the people in it and just fry them in their own fat. And I'll tell you, once the scales fall off your eyes and the chains come off and you see the reality of what Jesus was really saying and what the first century audience understood, it just revolutionizes things. And let's put it this way, free people want to set others free and they hate anything that binds them. So we're going to go into Matthew 24. I covered Matthew 23 in the first segment. Of, uh, of this last day's debunking last day's hysteria series. Uh, so we're going to get right into Matthew 24, but I want to let you kind of uh, want to tell a little bit about your story or your feelings about this last day stuff, especially in the midst of COVID-19 and yeah. Floyd and all just the upheaval in the world and how things, the world, a lot of people think that things are getting worse when they're actually getting better and there are statistics to prove that. But go ahead, I'll let you take it from there. So I was, uh, I was just married to my wife and uh, we uh, celebrated the wedding in India, Northeast India. That's where my wife is from with her family and all the relatives. And one day I just happened to be in her pastor's uh, house. And of course, I'm the kind of guy that whenever I go into a person's house, and bookworms unite somebody else out there is probably like this you check their bookshelf first and just see what's on there you know mm-hmm. not to like judge the guy or Anna, but just to see because you like books so um one of the books that i saw in there was called a uh, throne of blood or thrones of blood rather and i picked it up oh this looks interesting and it ended up being a reader's digest version 
of Josephus' uh, War or Antiquities of the Jews. I think he combined both of them. Really small book, and someone had done a great job of abridging Josephus into just pop language, like a language normal people can kind of understand. Mm -hmm. And that sucked me down the rabbit hole. You know what I'm talking about, man? Yeah. And I suddenly the Bible just opened up to me in a way on all the familiar casted characters were there, but the difference was someone else was talking about Herod the Great. Someone else was talking about Felix and Festus and the procurators from Rome. And, yeah. and uh, someone else was talking about all these familiar people that I read about in the Bible, but yeah. their backstory was suddenly being brought to the surface, which the Bible is silent on. Yeah. And, um, one thing led to another. I also came into contact with uh, Raptureless, Jonathan Wells's Raptureless. Mm -hmm. Someone gave it to me just on a whim. I read that. I saw the, the sources that he pulled from. And all of a sudden, is this map started laying itself in my mind that I think there's a reason why I felt through my whole life, including my childhood, I always felt the Holy Spirit uh, checking me not to get into end times. Like, don't touch it. Don't, you know, listen to anything. Don't read any of the books, like Angels and Demons kind of books or Last Days books. And just keep yourself on the narrow, you know, just on Jesus. You know, I kept hearing that from the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until that time when I was in Nagaland in India that I just felt this incredible release. And uh, now I don't want to put too much onto that because other people have had different visions and feelings and and things about and and that actually causes them to believe in futurism causes them to believe in the rapture and stuff like that but yeah. but what i liked about this was the more i read it the fruit of it was freedom just like he said it was this freeing releasing feeling and the and the the sense that i got was was the same sense as uh we mentioned this uh before just now the podcast crept out but uh this overview effect that I was talking about yeah. that astronauts have when they go up into space and they see the planet earth hanging there like a tiny fragile ball of life, just hanging there in the void, shielded and nourished by this paper thin atmosphere. And it just has this profound effect to change their worldview. And uh, because up from up there, from that vantage point, just like from our vantage point, seeing history, you know, from way up here, um, national boundaries vanish the conflicts that divide people become less important and the need to create a planetary society that is more united and more seeing eye to eye about things and more on the same wavelength in order to protect all of us together you know and help us to flourish and to thrive and let human society grow and these things just become obvious and imperative when you're way up there like those astronauts and so Yes. I don't know what you think, but I think that reading history kind of has the same effect as this phenomenon psychologists call the overview effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, when I began to look into things like original audience relevance, culture, language, history, these things really matter. It's like, you know, a love letter that's written for you, but not to you. So this yeah. is yeah. to you directly. Um, it's there for your learning and your understanding, but you've got to read it within context. You know, I liken it quite often when you look at the Bible, 
it would be like if I were to prophesy something, if I were alive in the 1920s and I talked about a beast arising out of Austria, okay, and traveling to Germany, all right, and seeking, you know, and gaining favor with people and, you know, and being someone who, uh, you know, helped the economy and helped all of these things and was, and was hailed by the people, this beast yeah. that just rose up out of, out of the sea, okay? Um, and I were to talk about that, and I would talk about the destruction of, uh, of six million people during that time, you know, that would, that would burn, uh, you know, in, in ovens and concentration camps and be tortured and murdered and use figurative language about all of that, okay? Mm. You know, God's chosen ones, these certain ones, and they're in this, you know. Um, if you didn't understand the context of Hitler and World War II and the Holocaust, you could very well think that that was for you in this day and age, and you could also think that that was something coming in, in the future, so to not know history is to misinterpret the present yeah. and the future when we're applying and to apply a really horrible hermeneutic that brings hopelessness. Because when we're talking about the last days, we're talking about the last days as they understood it in the first century, the last days of, of the old covenant, of old covenant Israel, of old covenant Jerusalem, of the old covenant temple, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, the elements, and all those things that, that the writer of Hebrews said was fading away and was, was done away with, was abolished in AD 70 when the Romans invaded Jerusalem. So this to me is so important. So when I look at that, I'm no longer looking for these perilous times coming and, and our children progressively getting worse and worse from generation to generation, the church getting less powerful and anemic and needing to be rescued uh, from the mm -hmm. incarnation of evil because the incarnation of good can't get the job done. <laughs> you know, I, I adhere to a much more victorious eschatology and I know you do too. And you were mentioning, I believe it was J.D. King's book about things, you know, you've been duped into believing uh, that things are getting worse. And yes. we're going to put some references on at the JesusConversation.org, our website, where people can access these books. But a question mm. that I ask people quite often when they start talking about how bad things are, because they're mm. interpreting current news through an improper eschatological lens, I will ask them, what century would you prefer to have lived in? And nobody can. Exactly. Ultimately, it's a head scratch, a deer caught in the headlights. And if they're honest, they conclude that it's right when they're living. As rough as 2020 has been, uh, it's, still, it's still better than the days of the Spanish plague, the Black Plague, uh, better mm. than the times when babies are just, instead of just being aborted, they're just abandoned on the side of the road where there's hardly any health care, hardly any education, where women are treated like worse than, you know, chattel. Um, you know, we've come a long way since the birth, life, burial, yeah. resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He is Amen. king. His, king. His kingdom has come. It is coming, and it shall come. So 
I'll let yeah. you play off of that just a little bit, and then we'll break yeah. down Matthew 24. I just want to say, preach it. Uh, again, we don't come at this from a know-it-all attitude. We're not from some, you know, ivory tower, you know, uh, espousing these things in, in a way that's condescending or holier than thou. It's just uh, we've come across material that helps us to show that, yeah, the world is getting better. All the way from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10, where the preacher says, why is it that, the, like, don't say, why is it that the former days are better than these? It isn't wise to ask that question. <laughs> so, so you don't want to moan like uh, people pining for the former glory days, you know, almost like uh, a high school football player whose time in the sun has ended, you know, Napoleon Dynamite. Remember that guy? And, uh, <laughs> And, uh, and now th your life is just progressively, you know, going downhill. Well, no, Solomon, or maybe not Solomon, but whoever the writer of this Ecclesiastes was, was uh, showed some real wisdom in saying that, look, it, the, have it in your heart to focus on things getting better, not worse, but, but believe and be optimistic, you know, have a brilliant attitude. Think brilliantly, Graham Cook, you know, like that, the art of thinking brilliantly instead yeah. of thinking negatively and, and you what's, up, what's up with a glorious church and a church that the wisdom the gates of hell don't prevail against and okay. unto him right. be glory in the church throughout all ages world without end amen <laughs> Ephesians yeah. one i mean and and i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you bind or loose yeah. on earth in heaven all that stuff so yes your so, kingdom come your will be done on earth right. as it is in heaven yes blessed are the peacemakers the meek shall inherit the land terra firma right. this is a real thing not something that god longs to destroy he's all about restoration recovery reconciliation yeah. so absolutely this is good stuff and so you know and and what we want to do today what you uh I'm so glad that you asked me to or invited me to do this with you is look through, you know, uh, one of the chapters in the Bible where a lot of people kind of get turned, uh, turned away or people get um, misconstrued about things or get confused about things. So that's, of course, Matthew 24. Yeah. And uh, particularly this chapter is... Um, is really does have a, a consensus among early church fathers like leaving aside epistles and especially the book of revelation which there's a lot of different views on even among the church fathers but a lot of early church writers just agreed that matthew 24 was pretty much talking about one particular event in history mm -hmm. so uh, you can talk about that a little bit if you want yeah yeah, yeah, wonderful. I mean, you know, I see, and we're, we, I want to talk with you, and we just bounce off of one another really well, and I enjoy the feedback, but I see Revelation ultimately as an indictment against the Roman Empire, and, and while it exalts Jesus and a victorious church, but I also see it as an indictment against all empire and of the kingdom of God overruling the kingdoms of this world, not through politics or military might, but through love and a lifestyle that is exemplified through what the kingdom looks like. And I believe Jesus nailed it in a nutshell in the Beatitudes. So that's just kind of a nutshell of what I believe. And I, I personally believe that uh, 
basically all of Revelation has been fulfilled. When I look at um, chapter 21 and 22, I see that as something that uh, was inaugurated with uh, the incarnation of Jesus and mm -hmm. is not yet, has not come to its fullness, yet the new heaven and new earth was, uh, has <laughs> already been ushered in. So that's, that's how I see it. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in order to reach that conclusion, though, it, it does take a bit of a process, didn't it? it yeah. It, and for me, wasn't Matthew 24 one of the main um, points of evidence, you might say, the kind of the, the, the trail, the rabbit trail that led you to the conclusion that uh, what, if this is true, then what about Revelation? Or if this is true, what about Paul's mentioning the end of ends of the age in uh, in say thessalonians and stuff like that so yeah um and it was so very foundational in in building my understanding of the of the whole topic of uh, what we call better covenant uh, eschatology you know better covenant theology yeah and of course there's no better source for an understanding of matthew 24 than josephus mm -hmm. and uh this is the guy and his I have his card here, one of the covenant Flavius cards. Flavius Josephus. I love this guy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he he took on the, the name of his benefactor. He, he was a slave of the Roman general, and he call, called himself by his family name because uh, he was a, a traitor. And, of course, some people, you know, call him on that and say, well, how can he be reliable as a historian if he's a traitor, you know, to his own people and stuff like that. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I'll be honest with you. A lot of historians agree that this this guy was a, a godsend in terms of being yeah. an eyewitness to that time in history, and yeah. if you just if you just understand his bias, which was to make Jews appear good to Romans after uh -huh. the war because they were mud to the Romans during the revolt. I mean, they were considered yeah. you know, animals or less than you know. But Josephus had a real work ahead of him, and that was to redeem the image of Jewish people in the eyes of the Romans, who, who he was now basically, um, I mean, he became a citizen and everything like that, and he was there, he became their guy. And so, uh, yeah, he was, but before that, before he turned, he was this first century Jewish general and a scholar. He commanded forces in Galilee. He was fighting against the Romans during the Jewish-Roman War. But then he surrendered through a very interesting turn, turn of events. Yeah, I, I see. He was positioned where he was. I believe it was divine appointment. You know. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> the perspective that he had was so unique. And if he's wanting to, um, you know, make the Jewish position look better in the eyes of the Romans, um, he sure it, it just shows his objectivity in the whole thing as he as he recorded things. Um, I think we need more journal, journalists like Josephus today, you know, who tell the story accurately, you know, and uh, and as it is, and just re you report the events. But yeah, Josephus, you can study Josephus if you're listening, watching. There are there's so much free information. You can get the free the complete works of, of Flavius Josephus free digitally and just read it on the internet if you'd like. And we're going to provide a list of books too that break a lot of things down and uh, different yep. facts from Josephus. So yeah, 
wonderful and stuff. I think and I think he was the reason why uh, some of the church writers like say John Chrysostom when they're when they're commenting on Matthew 24 they're just like we, we know what this is about you know we, we've read the story we know the history unfortunately a lot of us modern day people here in the 20th 21st century uh, haven't read the same thing and yeah. so I'll just I'll just tell you what uh, Chrysostom wrote um, he just wrote point blank Matthew 24 of the wars in Jerusalem is Jesus speaking it's surely it is not surely of those without that is outside of Jerusalem and everywhere in the world. It's not talking about other parts of the world. For what did the disciples of Jesus care for that? And besides, Jesus would say thus nothing new. If Jesus, in other words, if Jesus was going to talk about some outside, you know, a disaster or wars, that would be nothing new. The disciples would be like, of course, of course, there's other wars elsewhere, you know. Yeah. But uh, if Jesus was speaking of the calamities of the world at large, which are happening always, for before this were wars and tumults and fightings, but Jesus speaks of the Jewish wars coming upon them at no great distance. In other words, the time is coming soon. It's at hand. It's near. The hour, you know, is upon us. Yes. And he, he continues, for henceforth the Roman army was a matter of anxiety. And that was the elephant in the room. Uh, whenever Jesus is talking, when he's preaching, people who are reading the Gospels, you need to realize this looming menace that was around them. And that was the, the very careful and calculated tension between uh, the Jewish factions and some of whom, especially the Zealots, were very much a, a, a bomb, that was a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. And then the Roman army, the legions, and uh, the procurators and the, and the uh, like Pontius Pilate and so on, who were tasked with keeping a lid on the time bomb. Yeah. So, so this is the background to Matthew 24. And this is yeah. surely, as many early church writers said, is what Jesus was, uh, you know, had in mind and that disciples had in mind. Yeah. Things were coming to a head almost, you know? Yeah, you know, the Darbyism that we're debunking is so relatively new compared to these right. ancient teachings that we've discovered and that the church fathers believed and that, that many throughout history have, and even so many theologians today. We talked about this before, but I was shocked when I saw that R.C. Sproul had changed his mind. You want to talk about humility right. and just changing a lifetime of teaching and saying, hey, I had it wrong and this is how it is. And so, you know, more and more people are coming around. And I think, you know, that whole generation thing, once you know, after 1948, once you pass 40 years and then 70 years, and then, you know, we're past that. It's going to be getting to 100 years, 120. How long can you make a generation be, you know? Um, only so long. And a lot of people are just seeing things saying, you know, this doesn't add up. Jesus is enough. He is the consummate fulfillment uh, of the New Jerusalem, of the temple, of you know, of of Israel, of the people yeah. of God, universal. You know, um, God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to Himself. It's not about real estate. Jesus told the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he said, "Lady, it's not uh, in Jerusalem or in this mountain." that the Father seeks those to worship him. Those who worship him will worship him in spirit 
and in truth. And right. the bottom line is Jesus is enough, okay? And God never paused Israel or replaced Israel. He simply redefined Israel and fo completely fulfilled Israel okay, through the Lord Jesus Christ and continued his greater Israel product to where Jesus, the seed of Abraham, and if we're, and if we're Christ, we're Abraham's seed, that seed would bless all the nations. So all of these other things were just microcosms, whether it was the Garden of Eden, whether it was Moses' tabernacle, the tabernacle of David, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, all of that stuff was just really weak things pointing to Jesus Christ, and he is enough. There's no, there's no Jesus plus. We don't need all of the extra stuff, we can just function in this in Christ realm. Probably said too much there, but I get excited when we're talking about things like this, because I get excited about Jesus, and I'm excited about humanity. I'm excited about what God is doing uh, in earth. And, you know, I, I believe his kingdom is coming. His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that there's going to be a land for the meek to inherit. Uh, I, just, I just believe it. I believe that peacemakers are blessed. And there's no, you can't believe that unless you believe that peace can be made, that true yeah. peace can be achieved, you know? So, yeah. you know, praise God. What, what's happened so often is people have sacrificed the Beatitudes on the altar of their eschatology. So they have to have these wars of rumors and rumors of wars. Therefore, they perpetuate it through their theology, through the way that they vote, through the, the political stances that they take, and allowing nations to commit genocide and, and uh, you know, stealing land and everything else, supposedly all for Jesus, violating, you know, <laughs> violating the Beatitudes for Jesus. You know, it's, it's really, when you think about I mean, it, it deserves to be mocked. People who <laughs> share that do not deserve yeah. to be mocked. They are my brothers and sisters. I love them. But yeah, are you ready to dig into Matthew 24? Absolutely. And for All those right. that are watching, you know, I encourage you to get on the optimistic passion preaching style of Joe Chadburn. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, the best teaching comes from some, from people who, who have real hope and, and, and are, are, and are about the spirit of, of Jesus. Just like you said, it's an oxymoron to have a, uh, a doom and gloom Christian. It really is to have a Christian who is negative in their outlook or pessimistic in their outlook of the future. Of course, we encounter them a lot and bless them. We bless them in Jesus' name that your heart would be uh, would turn from stone to such flesh and be able to be so soft and and be able to respond to what the Holy Spirit might want to do through you to make your situation better to change the atmosphere around you and imagine that multiplied by a million Christians, you know, say, or even a thousand or even as few as 12 <laughs> hint, yes. hint. <laughs> 12 Christians, you know, upended the whole world. So young people amazing. don't, don't be like me. Okay. Um, young Joe was afraid to do so many things, afraid to go to college, afraid to save, afraid to get married, afraid to have kids. Because yeah. I thought it was just, we were living in the last days and there was no sense. And 
I just needed to go turn the world upside down with uh, what little I understood. Um, mm. And that can really, that's really led to shipwreck with so many people, especially five-fold equipping ministers, and especially if they're in Pentecostal charismatic circles like I was in, because out of one side of people's mouth, they're saying Jesus is coming any second and everything's going to be destroyed. We're in the, in the last days. And in the next breath, they're telling you that you're, you know, an apostle to the nations or a prophet to the nations, or you're going to reach multitudes. And, and so if he's coming any second and I'm called to do all of this stuff, what happens is we, some, we will function outside of our level of understanding and maturity and, uh, and really go shipwreck. And I've seen too many people go shipwreck and pour everything into this last day stuff and not save for the future, not have children, not get married, or be reluctant to do things. And then they really get behind the proverbial eight ball. And so I encourage you not to do that. And these teachings will help you drastically to get out of that mindset and to not make those same mistakes. Amen. So All right. you, just the segue, you made, a, you made a good segue a few minutes ago, uh, and that was Jesus with this Samaritan woman saying, mm -hmm. you know, uh, God's looking for worshipers in spirit and truth, and it's not about worship on the mountain or in Jerusalem. So that leads us to, I think, the first verse in Matthew 24. Exactly. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then get your feedback on it. Says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. What's he talking about there, Colin? So, one thing I noted first off the bat is for the disciples to talk about the temple's buildings, uh, they must have been grand. And you can't really get a sense of it from these scale models that you see in the, in the books or uh, that are kind of, people have done it in 3D CGI now. But to be there, to be present from their perspective and the things that we read that the temple looked like at the time, it must have been just an incredible you know, uh, example of, of architecture. And, from the time of Herod the Great on, he kept adding to it, making it more grand and even better as a kind of reflection of his own glory. A little bit similar concept to, remember the, his relative later, I think it was Agrippa, right? Who had that shining, gleaming armor, you know, that mm -hmm. whole thing. Uh, he wanted the temple and the buildings around it to be just amazing. And so um, we know that all adult male Jews, both in Judea and the greater population outside of Judea, they kept on paying this annual tax of two drachmas to support the temple. And it ended up that there was too much revenue. They didn't even know how to spend it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the temple authorities just began constructing this golden vine, apparently. Mm -hmm. And it began to wind its way, you know, through the temple. Or I don't know exactly where they put it, but anyways, it just... Uh, they kept adding to it every year. So more gold and more gold and more gold. And that's why uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 talks about people swearing oaths by the gold in the temple yeah. and, and not the temple itself. And so things like that. Um, it must have just been we, we quite just, a... We, yeah. yeah, we discussed earlier too that that may have been because Solomon's temple was filled with the, the manifest presence, the glory of the Lord, the, what they call the Shekinah. And... Um, that did not happen in the second temple, in Herod's temple. So 
I have a slight suspicion that Herod may have been trying to overcompensate for a lack of glory with a lot of glitz and glamour and uh, Which, can, yeah. and, 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 and waste. And we can probably apply that to 21st century churches as well and learn some, learn some valuable lessons about that. I would like to hear a sermon on that. That would be a great <laughs> analogy from the first century. You know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not about the program or the glitz and the glamour. You know, it's the content. It's the, it's the, the presence of, of God of, and the spirit of Jesus being in the room, you know, like that. So, yeah. yeah. Amongst, amongst so, brothers and sisters around a table, dining, and just enjoying the Christ in one another. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't, you know, people equipping, but it was, it was through community. It was through love. It was through yeah. dialogue. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's, that's another story for another, uh, for another day. But yeah. So, so what is this verse one and two speaking yeah. to you? So there's a, you know, why would Jesus say no stone left upon the other, but they will be thrown down. So it's almost like Jesus dismissed the disciples' uh, desire for him to say, you know, they wanted Jesus to say, wow, yeah, it's amazing, you know, but Jesus says the opposite, as he is wont to do, by the way. He often yeah. flips the, the script, you know what I mean? He contradicts, but so he just says, do you see all these things? You know, amen, I tell you, uh, it's going to be, you know, in paraphrased terms, torn down. It's going to be demolished. It's going to be uh, completely torn down. So, uh, there's a phrase that I, I like to use to try to explain to people why was it necessary for such an amazing bit of architecture to be to be torn down? Why? What was the purpose of destroying this building? Was it really necessary? And uh, so this phrase that I, I came across, I can't even remember who I got it from. Sorry, but it's uh, you know Jesus sacrificed in the crucifixion tore the veil. Remember how from top to bottom, and, and by the way, that that curtain man was two to three inches thick. It was no, that was no piece of, that was that was like 10 phone books, you know, or whatever, you know. So, yeah. um, and then it says, so Jesus sacrificed tore the veil, religion, human tradition, which Jesus calls, you, you, you render um, the word of God null and void. You remember that? It's, mm -hmm. You render it void by your tradition. It says religion sewed it back up. So Jesus sacrificed, tore the veil, religion sewed it back up. And so God removed the building. And it almost has the note of he had no choice but to remove the thing that was hindering the progress of mm -hmm. the gospel. And, and that's another sermon. You could do a whole message on what has God, yes. what temple has God removed in your life? You know, so there's so much yeah. application. Yet he, yet he loves these people so much that he weeps over them. And in this particular chapter and others, he is warning them in tears about what is about to happen and giving them explicit, them, first century Jews, explicit instructions about how to escape. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, and so it's, it's like Noah's Ark. He's building an ark because he knows the flood is coming. He's not angry. Yeah. And this is why I disagree with preterists and, and other um, theologians or teachers that are very soapbox, you know, in their, you know, and, and uh, sandwich board like, and, you know, like you need to repent and all this kind of stuff. So you can, you can err on both sides, it's futurism and creaturism. So 
what we want to do is we really want to have God's heart for what happened in Jerusalem. We don't want to uh, overstate anything about, about what you, because even Jesus, when the disciples were asking, you know, should we call fire down from heaven? Right. Uh, he was like, you don't know the spirit that you are of. So um, that's the spirit we want. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus actually appeared to agree with a small minority of Jews living at that time who did denounce the temple as impure. So it's not like all the Jews were pro-temple. That, that's not true. There was small sects that, that they also agreed. The temple is impure and they announced judgment on it. Uh, or at least announced judgment on the establishment that ran it. And some believed that God would send a new temple. Yeah. And so it would be like the fourth temple or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or no, the, I guess the third, right? The third, yeah. Fourth, if you count the tabernacle. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, but of course, that's different than Jesus. Jesus is like, we're not going to be in the temple business anymore. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. We're going to be in in the human being business now you know i'm the word made flesh that's yeah. tabernacling among you that's the jesus the incarnation is the temple the consummate fulfillment yeah, yeah. but what made jesus comment here about stone no stone being left on the other so controversial and so shocking uh was that most jews by far everyone you know mostly mostly everyone took it for granted that the temple was invincible and you can imagine why. I mean, it's been there for, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, if you count all the way back to uh, David, or sorry, Solomon. And um, of course, they would have seen it as God's house and, and by extension, God's city. So even Jerusalem itself gained mm -hmm. this aura of invincibility and invulnerability uh, because it's God's chosen people and, and city and stuff like that. So, um you know, of course, some people see, well, what about the Western Wall? You know, there are some stones that did remain on top of the other. Well, um, some it's not that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole or exaggeration here, but that wall is not part of the original temple. So that's, that's one uh, question I had in China. And yeah. uh, so when we try to answer that, we try to help people to see that there is walls and then there's retaining walls that were added later. And the Western Wall was like that. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. So we go to verse 3 here. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And those things, of course, he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And what shall be the sign of your coming? And let's talk about that coming because that parousia, that's an appearing, and I believe that is that is Jesus coming through the instrumentality on clouds of judgment through the Roman Empire and destroying the old thing so that the new thing can fully be established. And again, people can be set free. No one wants people set free uh, from the bondage of old systems and anything that uh, you know, that isn't him more than Jesus. And so the sign of his coming and of the end of the world, when people see that end of the world, it's like the sign of his coming. Okay, this is the last days when things are getting worse and worse and the incarnation of evil has overcome the incarnation of good and Jesus mm. needs to rapture an anemic church, you know? So mm. what, is, what is this saying to you? Break this down. 
Yeah, this is a little bit related to what we talked about last week in that uh, the Jews saw themselves as at the intersection, you might say, of two ages. And it's almost like the waxing and, and waning. It's not just black and white, you know what I mean? It's like the moon, something like that, going through its phases, you could say. And uh, as one goes down, the other comes up. And so at this confluence of the two ages, uh, the, the Jews recognized that there would be violence. It would be a transition period marked by, um, it wouldn't be a peaceful transition, but it was going to be quite uh, horrific, quite, quite tragic in, in many ways. And so um, what was the two ages they were talking about? Well, one was the old covenant age, the age of Moses, where they were under the thumb of constant foreign oppression and were, you know, lowest on the totem pole in the world. And then the new age would be the age of Messiah when he would come and redeem them and everything would be good again. But, but that wasn't going to be, again, a peaceful transition. There was going to be, uh, you know, uh, some violence in between. And so when it talks about what's the sign of your arrival, what's your coming what's the sign of your parousia well i talk about this in this card in uh this is covenant card uh number 11 and also 12 and uh, this particular greek noun is uh, is repeated in later in this chapter in verse 27 you guys might recognize this one as the lightning comes forth from the east yes. and shines as far as the west such shall be the parousia of the son of man and now, there's a couple ways that you can address this, and this is really interesting. Um, there's the wider Greek understanding, and then there's the Jewish understanding. So let's look at the Greek one first. In, in the Greek world, when people used this expression, or this phrase, or this word rather, parousia, uh, it's almost like you have this imagery that goes in your mind automatically. Things come up when you hear a word. And what would have come up in the Greek mind? Well. It was in the sense of a coming or a personal presence in the sense of an owner that alone is able to deal with the situation. Um, it's often interchangeable with another word called epiphania. And in the East, these words were a technical expression for a king's arrival, a visit, or even an invasion. So owner here, it was typically thought of as the king coming to uh, check out his land, check out his property, you know, check out his subjects and things like that, which, by the way, alludes to, you know, makes, should make you think of a lot of Jesus' parables, right, where the king comes back to inspect his, his, uh, his people and his land. And so sometimes people made these special payments in taxes to defray the cost of the sovereign's parousia, and those taxes were exacted, extravagant gifts were given to him, food or a crown of gold you know they uh gets a blacksmith or whatever a goldsmith to uh commission the special crown in his honor and uh in the case of certain roman emperors even a new era was reckoned when they came by the striking of these adventi coins where we get the word advent you know mm -hmm. coins empire-wide and um and so this is kind of the idea that that jesus words would have had upon the is a Greek, you know, the Greek speaking uh, Jews at the time, which yeah. was the, the majority. And so the idea is that, yeah, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to inspect. He's going to, his presence will be here. He won't be distant anymore. 
and um, and it's it's going to be uh, it, it's it's a judgment time you might say it's a time of decision. Now, uh, you know, combine that with the Jewish understanding of what this word was, say in the Old Testament, and the prophets talked about the coming of the Lord a lot, mm -hmm. and the day of the Lord, and language like that. And in the Old Testament language, God's presence, his power, his judgment, his deliverance was often shown, you might remember this, thick as thick clouds. There was thick clouds that yes. constantly surrounded him. Um, and so when we hear the word parousia, it often corresponds with this Hebrew idea of God coming in the clouds yes. and the day of Yahweh. And is often prophesied as being accompanied by these cosmic disturbances like signs in the sky and different unstrange phenomena and miracles that would take place at the same time. Um, this was not the literal appearing uh, of the deity in the sky. And this is where a lot of people fall off the wagon when, when they imagine Jesus coming in literally his white horse with the sword literally sticking out of his mouth oh, and coming okay. in and the you know slaying people and causing the fields to be filled with blood and it's like this uh this almost hollywoodized or or film or cinematic kind of jesus let's say that's that's um, when he's not a real lion or a real lamb he's got a real sword coming out of his mouth right. and a tattoo on his thigh that says king of kings <laughs> right. Lord of Lord. yeah yeah and so again we want to get away from the literal interpretation and come back to this metaphor uh this um that in the old testament how the prophets talked about the coming of yahweh uh which was god's personal inspection and judgment of a nation and notice in the old testament even he did it via indirect means yes. so typically like a foreign military power like yes. hello the, ba the babylonians the assyrians and and so on you know yes and uh, so no wonder Caiaphas tore his robes at Jesus's words later in, in, in Matthew 26, because the Nazarene's prophecy, Jesus' prophecy here, meant that the role of judge and accused was going to be reversed. It wouldn't be them being the judges anymore. It was going to be Jesus, the Son of Man. And uh, uh, on the Mount of Olives then, the disciples were very much inquiring about uh when this these kinds of things would happen this this transition would happen and the messiah would appear and the end of the age the old covenant age would take place yes oh man you know i've got a strong feeling that we are not going to complete in, in the entire chapter of matthew 24 tonight so we will pick that up i want to talk some more but i want to take our time because i think this is important sure. And I'd love to, if you've got time later in the week or, or throughout the next several weeks uh, to break this down, um, I think this is really, really important. And I want to make sure that we're not rushing through it. Does that sound sure. good to you? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Super, super. Now we're going to get into um, verse four and five and throughout there where different things are happening. Um, I would like in the future to talk about Second uh, Thessalonians 2, with the man of lawlessness, how that's been conflated with some guy called the Antichrist that somehow has Nero's number and everything else, you know, um, and how that has been totally just botched theologically and, uh, and brought about so much fear and projecting current events, uh, you know, onto the Bible 
um, instead of uh, instead of applying a proper hermeneutic. But so <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that just just a little bit now. But I do want I want to get into this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So verse four. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you mm -hmm. shall hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end, and we talk about what the end is, is not yet. And then he talks about, for nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And these are the beginning of, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you, the first century people he's talking to, specifically uh, the Christians, um, you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then yeah. shall many be offended and shall betray one another, hate one another. False prophets will arise. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure till the end, uh, the end of what, <laughs> shall be saved, and saved from what? So let's, uh, let's just pop that down. Uh, however you want to do, just, just let's take a peek at that chapter, and let's start breaking it down. So what, uh, in your King James Version translation, uh, which has caused a lot of confusion, uh, you you see, you hear in these verses a lot of the the end of the world and and the word especially the word end and so that's really worth spending some time on because uh, that's also what the disciples asked him what is the what's the sign of your arrival and of the end of the world but yes. if you look at that um, the word there in Greek is scintillia uh, and so here's a card here showing a train station a railroad tracks. And the idea there is end is, doesn't mean a termination. Rather, it's closer to the idea of a, um, a culmination or consummation. The idea is that um, instead of a complete stop or complete end, it would be that one thing would go into, like let's say the analogy of the train station, one track goes into the train station and it kind of merges together with something going out of the train station, as if tracks are merging, and then the train appears on the other side. You now, know, a good way—a good way to look at that. Instead of it being terminal in meaning like death and destruction, it's yeah. a terminal like a train station or an yeah. airport terminal that takes you to another dimension. Would that would that right. be fair to say? Yeah, and and let's say that the jet that you're on is upgraded, you know, and uh, is able to fit a higher capacity or is of better quality, is able to go faster, higher, stronger, and everything like that. Yeah. And so that's much more in line with what this word is talking about. It's a, what's the sign of your arrival and of the consummation of the age? And sometimes in, in other verses, that age is pluralized, ages. And so it, it gives you this idea of uh, things transitioning, things merging, that it's not uh, implying that the world is going to dissolve like snow, like some hymn says, but mm -hmm. rather uh, it's, it's something that is going to be even better going on. It's going to change. It's going to transform. There's a metanoia or something that's going to happen to yes. the world, which is an awesome message, which I know you love to preach on. Yes. Um, and so uh, Jesus here is now warning them 
again, he says, this isn't the end. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. In other words, something's going to be delivered here. And he gives some warnings. Just imagine the woman about to give birth, which isn't, you know, kind of alluding to Revelation chapter 12, right? Mm-hmm. Where the woman is, uh, is giving birth to the, to the son and also the other children are going to be warred on by the serpent and the dragon and stuff like that. But the idea is that uh, you need to be careful about some things when all this stuff is happening. So he says, keep watch. Nobody causes you to go astray. And there's two uh, kinds of people that he warns about in this chapter. One is people who say, I'm the anointed. And the other ones is in verse 11, the false prophets. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but just quickly, there's a, a short list of people during that time that Jesus could have been thinking of um, when he mentioned those things. And this is something I never knew. Again, when I pulled that book off the pastor's library, I was suddenly uh, made aware and realized that uh, Jesus was not the only Messiah that uh, cropped up during mm-hmm. that time period. And yeah. even, even there was uh, people who cropped up named Jesus, <laughs> yeah. like Yeshua, not just yeah. our Yeshua, but there was other Yeshuas. Because He's it was the a common true one, but there were many who claimed to be, yeah. 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 And so uh, um, there was, even before Jesus ministered, there was this guy, Simon of Perea, he was a former slave of Herod the Great. He led a Jewish revolt. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Josephus mentions it. Another guy, a guy named Athronges, he's a leader of a Jewish insurrection in around uh, 18 AD versus uh, Herod, Herod's uh, son. I, I guess it would be Herod's son. Mm-hmm. Then the big one, though, is this guy who was around in the 40s. And he was named Theudas. He claimed to be a prophet. He appeared and urged the people to follow him with all their belongings. Guess where? To the River Jordan. And, uh, you know, kind of like Moses, you know, as he approaches the promised land. Or Joshua, rather, as he approaches the promised land. And that this guy, Theudas, said, I am going to divide the waters here. And that's going to be the sign that, you know, I'm the anointed one, the Christ. Um, But according to Acts, uh, uh, he secured about 400 followers. But the procurator at the time, a guy named Fadus or Fadus, sent troops of horsemen after him and his band and just wiped them out mm-hmm. and took captive, either wiped them out or took them captive together with their leader. And sadly, Theodos was beheaded. And so this fits perfectly, merges perfectly with what Jesus is talking about. You know, don't be fooled by these kind of guys. They're going to come. They're going to say amazing things. But just like the cult leaders of our day and age, these yeah. are people we need to discern and uh, and not listen to them. Yeah. Um, the the funnier one for me though, is, and you might remember this one, is that unnamed Egyptian Jew that mm. Paul gets mistaken for in Acts. I think it's twenty one. Paul was almost killed by this hostile mob, and the Roman commander arrested him. And then Paul says something to him in Greek, and the commander is all surprised, and he's like, "Do you know Greek?" Aren't, are you that Egyptian guy who stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And of course, Paul's like, nope, I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. But what was he talking about, you know? And, and, and it surprised me that that wasn't just in the Bible, but Josephus talks about him and says he was another one of these um, people who would exaggerate their grandeur, you know, delusions of grandeur. 
and he led like 30,000 Jews out into the wilderness to the Mount of Olives and threatened to force entry into Jerusalem and, and take it over and liberate it from this Roman occupation. But as usual, the Romans just responded, killed them all, and, and he just disappeared. So 30,000 is a huge number of people to be deceived, but there's, there's, there's been more through, you know, throughout history, but yeah. wow. So yeah, these things, these aren't, this isn't about natural, not that you want to follow a cult today, but these are not modern day boogeymen or people in, in the future. Jesus said these things would come to pass. We're going to get to that in the future here uh, in our teaching. But he said, this will happen in this generation. This generation right. shall not pass until all these things that I've been talking about here have been fulfilled. Um, so this is, this, is so, this is so important to understand that because again, when you understand history, you're not going to project fulfilled events onto your present or your future. You can learn from them, but the direct application and the fear of them is, is, is no longer there. It is it's not merited whatsoever. Stop fearing your future, people. <laughs> now, uh, another one, maybe the last one we'll talk about, is the one that really leads up to the crux of the whole thing, which is the, the war, the revolt of the Jews against the Romans. And um, a lot of these messiahs that we talked about in the already, they expected that Israel would be delivered just through sheer divine intervention. They just mm -hmm. expected God to magically um, witness, you know, to their uh, authenticity and, and do some miracle for them. But there was one that came out that was like, mm -mm, I'm not waiting for divine interference. And uh, this guy's name was Menachem ben Judah. Mm -hmm. He was the son of Judas the Galilean and the grandson of Hezekiah. Uh, the leader of the zealots who had troubled Herod. And this guy was not uh, a spiritual man per se. He was a warrior, okay? Mm -hmm. Kind of in, in the same vein maybe of the Maccabees or something like that. And so when the war broke out, this guy took it upon himself. You know, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to advance God's timetable. I'm going to try to pressure almost. I, I don't know if he used those words, but it, the, the idea was that Maybe it's if on the earth I do something, then maybe Yahweh will do something. Does that make sense? The mm -hmm. Similar to the way ISIS operates and things like that. They want to also advance Allah's timetable in destroying the infidels or whatever, you know? Or, or whoever <laughs> they're working for, because I don't, I don't even, they're not following Islam. They're just, yeah. Right. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so he attacked Masada with his band of followers and armed his followers with the weapons cache that was stored there. And then he used those weapons to proceed to Jerusalem, where he captured the fortress Antonia, which was a big deal. I mean, a legion hadn't been kicked out of a, a, bear, or a, a fortress like that, a garrison like that in, in a long time. They overpowered the troops of Agrippa II. And emboldened by his success, he behaved as a king. He claimed the leadership of all his troops. And that, though, uh, made a conflict among the zealots. There was another zealot leader named Eleazar, and uh, he conspired against this guy, Menachem ben Judah. And that little civil war that happened knocked him off you know, his mm -hmm. horse. And, uh, but it's not like things calmed down from there. As you know, 
that only was one little match in this massive uh, conflagration uh, that, that ensued. And the whole region just caught fire and the Romans ended up coming and completely decimating Galilee and Judea. You know, that, that's the beauty of all this because Jesus foretold all of it. And then Josephus <laughs> tells the history, tells what happened. He explains what, what, uh, what came to pass, that Jesus' words exactly. were fulfilled in and around AD 70, these exact words. But we don't know. If we don't know history, we can read this and apply a very harmful hermeneutic that's not good for us or anybody else. Yeah. And by the way, I, I, I agree with you. Why don't we just take our sweet time with this? Because, you know, you, can even, bring, you can even bring the Christmas story into it. Because you, you, you might ask yourself, you know, why did, um, why did the zealots rise up? Well, if you remember, Mary and Joseph had to go down to Bethlehem, the birth, uh, kind of the hometown of uh, Joseph, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason they had to do that is because Augustus Caesar had decreed uh, this law, this rule that you have to pay your your tax or whatever, your, your census, take the census of the people and at the same time pay money. And so uh, I don't know what that was about. Was it for him to kind of count the number of subjects in his empire for some glory seeking thing or whatever? But, yeah. but at any rate, whatever he did that for, maybe it was also just for security purposes. So everybody gets registered, you know, or whatever. It's just similar. There's, there's also, there's probably, I'm just speculating, but probably an underlying uh, sense of control right. and a message to people that you better be at such and such a place by such and such a time. Okay. And yeah. we, we rule you. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, that, you know, to excuse my French, but that pissed off the Jews to no end and mm -hmm. it even it even saw the arrival or the birth of this thing called the fourth philosophy and of course we know the three there's the Pharisees the Sadducees and the Essenes but suddenly mm -hmm. this fourth philosophy came about that we need to take matters into our own hands we can't be passive like these other groups these other sects we got to do this on our own and so these people were called the zealots and it was founded by a Pharisee and this uh, general guy, uh, I think it was Eleazar, was the Pharisee, and I can't remember. I can't remember the names, but anyways, uh, this was the birth of a new faction in the Jewish world, and they. And, and by the way, one of them was Jesus' disciple, right? Simon, Simon mm -hmm. the Zealot, became Jesus' disciple, and so he would have been initiated into their beliefs, their ideology. He would have come into Jesus' little band full of these, you know, ideas. And, but gradually, I'm sure, it doesn't talk about him much in the Bible, but you can imagine how he being in the presence of the real Messiah would have completely flipped his worldview upside down. And how wonderful yeah. is Jesus to, to ask this guy to follow him, huh? <laughs> yes. I mean, he... But, Along with the rest Jesus, of that motley crew. <laughs> yeah, it really proves that from that day to this jesus will just take anybody he, yeah. he's no respecter of persons man that's good news for me yeah come on so uh yeah i mean that that brings us to verse six you know you begin to hear about wars and rumors of wars we've already talked about several of those mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that these have to be world wars you know what i mean this this no. idea of armageddon doesn't have to be the idea that it's a global conflict 
no. uh, Jesus is talking about battles, um, events, you know, violence, mobs, and things like that. Nation rising against nation. By the way, this is not. And he um, and he says, "See that you are not troubled." He's talking to yeah. them. Right. See that yeah. you are not troubled. So, so implying that his disciples would still be alive, right, when mm -hmm. these things took place. And so, when he talks about nation rising against nation, he's remember he's not talking from a 21st century perspective, or especially you know from the 19th to 21st century. This idea came about of geopolitical entities, which we call nations now. Yeah, that's not what nations were back then. No. Uh, if anything, if you look at the word nation there was talking about uh, what we would call ethnicity. Yeah, you ethnos, know? yes, yes. Na nationality, which is another covenant card. And, um, and so you can see that in the first century there, ethnicities, nationalities were constantly at each other's throats, different mm -hmm. ones, especially uh, Jews and Greeks and Jews yes. and, and the tribes that were around them. Because it was a kind of a game of one-upmanship. If the, uh, the Jews persecuted the Romans and through their Sicarii hiding their daggers in their cloaks at festival time, stabbed a bunch of legionaries, leaving mm -hmm. them dead when the crowd dispersed, that would cause uh, a very disproportionate reaction, kind of like America does with mm -hmm. countries around the world. Um, like if you do this attack, we're going to bomb the crap out of you. The yeah. Romans would would just decimate you know a town or yeah. or even if they didn't but the jews one time uh killed a bunch of merchants out on the road well the greeks in a neighboring town just genocided the jewish population in that town yeah. and so this is another example of nations rising against nations ethnicities against ethnicities just like jesus prophesied yeah and there were there were times where people were crucified all along for miles and miles along the way and people would walk by and and see that it was just a right. the cross was such a brutal display of empirical force exactly yeah, yeah. They, they weren't they weren't messing around even Pilate. you know people were like complaining to jesus about pontius Pilate. like this guy mixes the blood of gentiles and their sacrifices he's a horrible guy mm -hmm. and 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 strangely jesus kind of deflects the whole conversation as if that's not really what i'm here about you know like yeah like i'm sure it was maddening to them mm -hmm. how how much jesus wasn't going alongside their political ideology yeah. like, it's like wait till you see what i'm up to i'm about to turn this thing upside down by showing them how much i love all of you by <laughs> allowing you people to take your wrath out on me <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm going yeah. to swallow you up in my love, ultimately. I mean, wow. Yes. It's, Amen. Praise God. It's mind-boggling. You know, unless, if you have a little bit more to share, that'd be great. If not, we'll find yeah. a cutoff point, And then we'll, uh, we'll continue this the next time we get together. And I'm really glad we're taking our time. This is, this is great. Because I want to be able to refer people to this. Because it's one thing to talk back and forth on social media. It's another thing to have someone say, hey, listen to this, watch this. You can reference yeah. it and understand where we're coming from. And this is so much uh, better and, you know, and so important for people to have instead of just people just slinging misunderstood ideas around that are, right. that are coming from you know, uh, false perceptions you know, and, and yeah. seeing things through you know, 
different lenses that uh, let's say perhaps may not be accurate. Yeah, and so what we're trying to do here is be specific about what may, like imagine the newspapers of the world were back in the first century, what headlines would they have put on it? Rather than attributing headlines of today, you know, as explaining Matthew 24, what about the headlines back then? Mm -hmm. What kind of newspaper eschatology would you have back then? Of course, yeah. the problem is they didn't have, you know, global internet or, or, or media like they have now. Yeah. And so you have to kind of dig through some history books and, and find out, is there a way to uh, explain what Jesus is saying based on events of the time very near at hand coming soon that yeah. he talked about? And, and the truth is there are. So finishing up verse seven, uh, nation against nation, kingdom is kingdom. He says there's going to be uh, famines and earthquakes in various places. And this is one of the times when you can use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Because remember, Agabus in Acts 11 stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be this great famine all over the world. And lo and behold, if you look at history, that happened just a short time later. I think it was the next year or two years later. And, uh, and um, it was so bad that Paul later said, guys, he, he kind of made a collection, didn't he, of all the churches in Asia and I think Greece. Mm. And he was going around making a collection for the brothers in Jerusalem because they were so bad off. Yeah. The famine- and All over the world, that was the known world at that, at that time. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which would have been, yeah, the, the Okumene, the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and the idea that uh, just as Agabus said, the the famine would be felt by many many people and yes. so so that's a, another um feather in the cap of jesus accurate prophecies you know and i feel bad for c.s lewis you know when he said that uh jesus was correct about everything except for this point and stuff like that but he uh, did too yeah but maybe i don't know I'd, I'd like to hear his reasoning about why he couldn't see like some of the other church writers in history that matthew 24 was talking about these events mm -hmm. so anyways earthquakes also uh, occurred and um let me see if i can find yeah so it and was famines, 46... pestilences these things these things are recorded yeah yeah um Oh yeah, 58 AD. So this is uh, 12 years later after the famine. Mm -hmm. uh, Tacitus, the Roman Greek writer rather, uh, writes that 12 major cities of Asia fell in ruins from an earthquake. Um, Seneca also says, how many cities have been swallowed up in Asia, Achaia and Syria? How many in Macedonia? How often in Cyprus? News has often been brought us of the destruction of whole cities at once. And so there was an unusual a uh, number of earthquakes happening around uh, this, the time between Jesus' crucifixion and the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. So. Well, that's probably going to be, that sounds like a good point to just pause. We are not through, we are not saying goodbye, but we are going to, to pause and then pick this back up where we left off the next time we meet. Uh, thank you so much, Colin. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation, what you bring to thank the you. conversation, and how much more beautiful it is than if I were just talking and sharing about Matthew 24. The dialogue is really, really wonderful. And appreciate I deep, deeply appreciate that, my dear brother. 
and for all of our viewers and listeners. Uh, we love you so much. Uh, God bless you. We don't claim to know everything. We are growing in our understanding, but we invite you. We invite you to explore uh, better covenant theology and, and a message that brings hope for the future. And we're going to be laying those things out about uh, what we, how we view these things through this, uh, this particular uh, lens that we believe to be far more accurate than uh, what we grew up learning and that what I learned in my formal theological training. So we want to help. We're here to help. We love you. Um, feel, free, feel free to uh, message me on Facebook, touch base with me uh, through the jesusconversation.org or jesusguyjoe at gmail.com. Um, and you can, uh, you can also get up with Colin. What's, what's a good way to get up with you, Colin? Yeah, either through Facebook, you know, fb.com slash Colin McIntyre, or check out the, uh, the website, covenant.cards. And there's tons of resources there. I've made one uh, completely free. It's the digital version of the first edition of the Covenant cards, just yes. like this one. And uh, guys, go ahead and download that. And if you like it, you can get the expansion sets and the second edition to is there for you. Also, uh, the blog at Wineskin, W-I-N-E-S-K dot I-N. If you want some amazing New Covenant writers uh, just filling you with, uh, with awesome revelation, awesome information, some practical help for Christian life, and also some meaty theology, please go and and have a look and give me your feedback. All right. Well, thanks once again, my dear brother and all of our friends. We will see you, you next time. We're looking forward to it. Bless you, Colin. Take care, bro. Thanks so much for being with us today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share with family, friends, and those who have yet to discover their awesomeness and yours. You can also check us out at thejesusconversation.org. And remember, no cows were harmed during the recording of this episode.